already. You know, to have children is to be lied to. They come out of the womb as little liars, don't they? Megan and I recently, we, are, are, we had the inside of our home painted. And we were so proud to have this fresh paint on the walls and everything just looked so new and so clean. And one day Megan was putting away some things in the girls' closet, they share a closet. And just, I mean, I'm talking within like two days of having the room painted. She goes in and she notices in the closet that one of them has drawn with a pen on the wall in the closet. And you know, it's not really that big of a deal because it's in the closet, but it's one of those situations as a parent, you really want to nip it in the bud before you have like toddler graffiti throughout the whole house. And so she begins to inquire and to start the early interrogation stages. And she begins to ask them who did it. And of course, of course, there's no, 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 we've never heard of such a travesty as that, right? And so we begin to realize we're going to have to isolate the children and begin to break them down emotionally so that we can do the proper interrogation techniques and have a divide and conquer mentality. And we begin to ask, and our oldest, she begins to break down emotionally and is just crying, and I didn't do it, mommy, I didn't do it, mommy, I didn't do it, mommy. And then we have our, our youngest, and she is stone-faced like a CIA operative. <laughs> nope, not me. Don't know what you're talking about. Couldn't be me. And we're, and we're sitting there and we're thinking, okay, this is not even a big deal, but, but the lying is escalating the situation. You know what I mean? And so we begin to explain it. Like, there has to be discipline because there has been, there has been paint coloring on the walls. And now, now there has been lying and lying. We have zero tolerance policy for lying in our house. And so we, we begin to explain, like, you're, somebody's going to have to fess up or we're going to have to, two girls in trouble. Somebody is going to get their sister in trouble. And it continues on and it continues on. It's the same situation. The oldest breaking down, crying. I didn't do it, mommy. I didn't do it, mommy. The, old, the, the youngest, I don't know what you're talking about. No big deal. <laughs> and so we do, we discipline both. Although we have, you know, as parents do, inclination of who it is. We, we think it's probably the younger one. And so we, we discipline them both. And, and you know, you're a little easier on the one that you think's innocent, but you, you get the point across either way. And, and then it wasn't a couple, you know, probably two hours later when we finally secured the confession. But what we had was, is we had a situation in which someone was caught in the wrong. Someone was caught in a lie. And yet she continued to double down on it. She continued to double down on her story. She continued to double down on her sin. She continued to double down on her lie. And that's the situation that we're gonna see in Isaiah 7 this morning. Is we have the king of Judah. And the king of Judah is being, is being uh, shepherded and even called out and rebuked by the prophet of God because he has been caught in the midst of sin and caught in the midst of a lie. And now what we're going to see is that the king, rather than ret returning, rather than repenting, rather than going and taking refuge in the Lord, instead, instead what he's going to do is he's going to double down on his unfaithfulness. He's going to double down on his unbelief. He's going to double down on his lie. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. When you get to Isaiah 7, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's Word together? 
Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to begin in verse 10 and read to verse 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ahaz being the king, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of, of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. If you've been with us any time, I've kind of explained a little bit that at this point in history, the kingdom of Israel, God's people have been divided into two separate kingdoms. To the north, you have the kingdom of Israel. Sometimes it's referred to in the book of Isaiah as, the, as Ephraim or even as Jacob, but that's all referring to the northern kingdom of Israel. And they have long since departed and divided ways from Judah. And they have went uh, down the path of total wickedness and rebellion to the Lord and complete uh, rejection of his ways. Their capital city is Samaria and they're going on their own way and doing what is wise in their own eyes. And then you have the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah, sometimes called the house of David or the kingdom of David. And they have maintained a better record of righteousness, though certainly not sterling. And their capital city is Jerusalem. The world power at the time is the Assyrian Empire and everybody within a stone's throw of the Assyrian Empire is panicked. They're totally freaked out that, some, that the Assyrian Empire is going to overrun them and overtake them and make them subjects of their empire. And so what the Lord has done way prior in, in uh, history past is he had told his people, do not have alliances. Do not have unholy alliances with other nations. I will defend you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. So of course, the Northern Kingdom immediately enters into an alliance. They enter into an alliance with Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, two different places at this point. And they enter into an alliance so that they can hopefully fend off an Assyrian attack. And what they want is they want Judah to join in so that they can create this, this three-headed monster that can bound to, bind together and defend the property and the land from the Assyrians. But Ahaz refuses. Ahaz rejects the request to join in with an alliance with Syria and Israel. And instead he stands on his own. And we might be inclined to think that Ahaz at this point is a pretty good dude. But what happens is, is Syria and Israel decide that they are going to attack Judah and they come after Judah so that they can depose, uh, depose Ahab, Ahaz from the throne and install a puppet king that will agree to their treaty. And so they begin to go and he hits the panic button that rather than trying to fight off Assyria, what he decides he can do is he decides that he can go and befriend Assyria. And he actually goes and he robs the treasury of the temple of the Lord where people have brought gold and silver as offerings unto the Lord. And he takes these and he brings them to the king of Assyria and he gives them as offerings to the king of this pagan empire. And so where we are, God has sent Isaiah 
He has sent his prophet to his king. And you'll remember the book of Isaiah is seen from the perspective of the kingdom of Judah. And he has come so that he might rebuke him and call him back and say, no, no, Ahaz, trust in the Lord. Don't form this alliance with Assyria. Instead, instead, bank your hopes, bank your, your, your kingdom on the Lord. And it's here that we get the backstory of the virgin birth. It's in this context that we get one of the most remarkable and precious promises in all of the scriptures. That here, the seed of the virgin birth is planted, which comes into full bloom, what we read earlier in our weekly text in Matthew chapter one. And so really what we see is our text begins with a completely unexpected twist. God offers assurance to Ahaz. God offers assurance. The Lord offers assurance. Ahaz had rejected God's word. He had shown a lack of confidence in the Lord. He had shown that he was going to not only disobey the Lord's call to not enter into these unholy alliances, but at the very same time, Ahaz had shown that he would reject the word that came through the prophet. He would reject the warnings that had come through the prophet. He would reject the promises that God was making to him, that he would defend him, that he would, he would make sure that he endured, that he would make sure that Jerusalem was protected, that he would do it in a way that was not expected, that would crush those that ultimately came against him. And so as Ahaz begins to persist in his rejection of God's word and his rejection of God's promises, what would we expect to happen? We, we would expect that God to bring great judgment against Ahaz. We would expect that God might crush Ahaz into fine powder and raise up a king that would obey him and honor him, that he would use Ahaz as an example to his people of unfaithfulness and the result of unfaithfulness. But that's not at all what God does, is it? God doesn't do that. Instead, God comes to Ahaz and he says, look, I know that you're doubting and I know that you're trembling and I know your hands are shaky and your knees are weak and your heart is racing. I know all of that. I know there is unbelief and I know there is doubt and I know there is insecurity. So here's what I'll do, Ahaz. You name the sign that will increase your faith. You name the sign that if you see that, you will be certain and you will be assured that I will keep up my word. You name it as high as the heavens or as low as Sheol. That is, you can call down the angels from heaven. You can call the dead out of the ground, anything in between, as miraculous as you need it to be, as powerful as you need it to be, as unprecedented as you need it to be. You call on my name. You name the sign and I will deliver that your heart might be comforted, that your faith might be assured that I will in fact deliver my people. That is that he responds to Ahaz's unbelief, Ahaz's self-righteousness and self-sufficiency with an offer to assure him of his own love. That God is constantly having to come to our hearts, isn't he? And remind our hearts that he does in fact love us. That he has in fact always been with us. Though his faithfulness is proven, though his might is proven, though his promises have been kept, God is constantly having to come to us weak as we are and reassure us again and again that he is the Lord and that he is good and that he is gracious and merciful and powerful and willing and able. See, one of the most common reasons that in the Old Testament that God sends signs is that he might reaffirm his covenant with his people. 
that he might remind his people that he is the one that made the covenant with Abraham. He is the one that made the covenant with Noah. He is the one that made the covenant with them on the top of Sinai. He is the one that divided the sea that they could escape Egypt. He is the one that sent them food from the sky that they would have plenty to eat. He is the one that crushed the walls of Jericho. And so time and again, over the course of the generations, the Lord would send signs to reaffirm his love, his commitment, his covenant with his people. And what covenants ultimately do is covenants serve to highlight both God's strength, or signs highlight both God's strength and our weaknesses. God, signs highlight both God's strength and our weaknesses. They are illustrations of how good God is in light of how unbelieving we are. Think about this. Who is it that can give a sign? Who is it that can give a sign? The only one who can give a sign as high as the heavens, as low as Sheol, the only one that can send the armies of angels or call up and resurrect the dead from the grave is the one who reigns over it all. The one who can speak an ex nihilo from absolutely nothing, bring galaxies into existence. The one who without materials can think the creation and make the creation at the will of his own desires. The one who can place man in the garden garden and then redeem man from his sin. The one who has formed us in our mother's womb, who knows the number of hairs on our head, the days of our lives. He is the only one that can give the sign. The only one that can cause the sun to stand still is the one who put the sun there to begin with. The only one that can divide the waters of the sea is the one who dug the sea and then filled it from the beginning. The only one that can send the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day is the one who controls the fire and controls the cloud. It is the Lord. It is the Almighty. It is the ruler of all things. And so all of the signs are a demonstration of his power, an illustration of his goodness and kindness and mercy. There's a second side. Who is it that needs a sign? Who is it that needs a sign? If I believe wholeheartedly unto the Lord, I don't need him to prove himself to me. If my faith isn't shaky, I don't need God to part the sea and mount the sun. I don't need him to do that because I know, I know he will come through. I know that he is who he says he is. I know that his promises are rock solid. I know that his prophecies will be fulfilled. I know that his word will be kept. See, the people that need the signs are those of us who are weak. Those of us who can relate to Ahaz better than we, can, we would like to admit. Those of us who can see the Lord answer a prayer on Friday in a way that is utterly sovereign and miraculous so that we praise the Lord and call our friends and say only God could have done something like this only to have Saturday morning us say, woe is me. God has abandoned me altogether when we find the most, the most minor of difficulties. It's us. We are weak and we struggle and we walk and we tremble and we're nervous. And time and again, in spite of the history of faithfulness, in spite of the history of power, in spite of the history of kindness, in spite of the history of mercy, again and again, we go and we say, God, have you forgotten me? God, where are you? And so signs, signs are as much an an, an affirmation of the weakness of man as they are the strength and the might of God. 
And this is where we get to understand what he's doing in Isaiah 7 when he offers Ahaz the sign. You think God doesn't know that Ahaz is gonna reject the sign? God knows. You can't do all of the things that God is offering to do here and not already know what's in Ahaz's heart. He knows what's in Ahaz's heart. You know what God's doing? He's drawing out his unbelief. He's drawing out with the offer of a sign. He is drawing out what is in Ahaz's heart to already do. He is drawing out the unbelief of the king who comes from the line of David, the king after God's own heart and sitting upon his throne. He is drawing out in the king of Judah, the unfaithfulness of Judah and the unfaithfulness of his people to show that his judgment is not unwarranted. His judgment is not unkind. His judgment is absolutely necessary if he is going to save Israel. Israel from herself. And so he's drawing it out. You know, God will do that. God will do that to Ahaz. God will do that to me and God will do that to you. God will draw out either your faith or your unbelief. It's amazing when you really think about it, that sometimes it's through good news. Sometimes it's through bad news. Sometimes it's through hard times. Sometimes it's through good times. Sometimes it's through poverty. Sometimes it's through affluence. Sometimes it's through speaking and offering signs. Other times it's like Job and it's through silence. But it's interesting that all of us go through these experiences in our life in which either unbelief is drawn out or faith is drawn out. You know, two people can face the exact same circumstance and have a completely different reaction. It's interesting, isn't it? Some people go through the valley of the shadow of death and they come out and they lift up their hands and they say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And other people walk through that very same valley and they come out and they curse the name of God. How could you? How could you possibly be good? How could you possibly say that you love me? How could you possibly claim to be gracious and merciful? We might think of David and Goliath. We think of David and Goliath, we think of the faith that David demonstrated, the the confidence as he faced before this great titanic of a man, this man who was the essence of the unsinkable ship who stood before all of Israel and all of Israel is trembling in the background and the shepherd boy steps forward and he says, I know, I know if the Lord has delivered the lion and the Lord has delivered the bear, the Lord will deliver this giant. And he puts his faith not in himself, but in his God. And he stands before this Titanic of a man and down goes the unsinkable ship to the bottom of the ocean. But you know, Saul faced that same giant. The king Saul, he he faced the very same giant that David faced. And he was the one that was supposed to be facing the giant. He was the one that was supposed to slay this enemy of his people. He was the one that was supposed to set the pace and confidence and faithfulness and obedience unto the Lord. And here is the king trembling, hiding with his army, offering his his armor and his sword to a shepherd boy to take his place. See, the same event, the same enemy, The same hardship drew out faith in David and unbelief in Saul. And I wonder in our lives, brothers and sisters, as we walk this life, as we go through ups and down mountaintops and valleys, as we face poverty and affluence, as we face decisions that are positive and negative, as we experience downward turns in our week and upward turns in our week, I wonder, I wonder what's being drawn out in us. I wonder what's being drawn out in us. Is your faith in the Lord being drawn out of you or is it your unbelief 
This morning I have prayed that the Lord, if it is faith that is being drawn out of you, that it might be encouraged, that it might be increased, that it might be advanced. And I have prayed the same, that if the Lord is drawing out of you this morning unbelief, that you would be convicted by the Spirit of God and that this morning you would come in saving faith and say, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I have not believed. I have not had confidence, but today I am willing to die to myself that I might be made to bring to, brought to life by you in your kindness. What's being drawn out of you? This morning, would you come to faith, come to Christ with whatever that is? Would you come to Christ? What we see next is, is interesting. It says, but Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. That is true to character. Ahaz, the king, he doubles down. He doubles down on his plan. He doubles down on his ingenuity. He doubles down on his wisdom. He doubles down on his lie, his sin, his unfaithfulness. Can I just tell you, if I am in Ahaz's shoes and God comes to me one day and he says, Cody, this is what I want you to do. Name your sign. You tell me the sign and I will bring it to be so that you can be assured that I'm with you. Can I just tell y'all something? I'm going to see something. I'm going to see something. I'm going to see a mountain fall into an ocean. I'm going to hear a deer sing the Star Spangled Banner. I'm going to walk across Coleman Lake like something. I'm going to see something. But not Ahaz, not Ahaz. You see, Ahaz didn't want the Lord to be right. Ahaz didn't want Isaiah's prophecy to be true. Isaiah didn't want the warning to be brought about. He didn't want assurance that God was with him because he had already made up his own mind that he was gonna go his own way and that he was gonna entrust himself to Assyria. He had already decided that he was gonna walk in sin and unfaithfulness and disobedience and he wanted the goodness of God, the grace of God, the protection of God, the thought of God to be completely gone from his consciousness. You ever been there? You know you're gonna walk into sin. You know you're going to be unfaithful. You know you're going to be disobedient. And so you don't wanna hear the preacher preach and you don't wanna hear the praise song sang and you don't wanna hear the godly friends counsel. You want all thought of God to be gone from you because you already know, you were already resolved in your will to walk against the Lord. And the thought of anyone holy, anything holy, any thought holy only brings conviction upon your life. And so here's Ahaz. And what we realize is that the very same sign that is to strengthen others is going to bring hardness to his heart like Pharaoh in Exodus as he sees the signs and the plagues of God come up against Egypt again and again. His heart is hardened by himself and it even goes so far as to say by the Lord, his heart is hardened. See, what we see in Ahaz is a fraudulent faith, a fraudulent faith. He didn't really love God. He only acted like it on the days it was time to worship. He didn't really praise God and trust God. He only went through the rituals and did the things that he was required to do because it had been handed down to him from his father and the father before him. It is, he is walking in a cultural faith, a cultural Christianity in which he says with his mouth that he obeys the Lord. He says with his mouth that he trusts God, but he lives with his life something completely different. It is fraudulent. It is a facade. It is outwardly expressed, but not inwardly lived. 
And I think we see in him, through his response, indicators as to whether or not our faith is fraudulent. Whether or not if we are like Ahaz and we are pretending to have faith in God. You notice what he says first? He says, I will not ask. I will not ask. Ahaz has been invaded by two armies to the north. They are coming for his throne. They're going to depose him, remove him from the throne. And by the way, that means they're going to execute him. They're going to execute him, likely execute him and all of his family so that there is no competition for the throne so that they can set up their own puppet king. What man of God in a situation like that wouldn't be quick to pray? What man who had faith and confidence and trust in the Lord, his first reflex in a situation as desperate as that one would not be to fall on his face, tear his robes and seek the face of God and the help of God and the protection of God. But Ahaz says, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to do it. Why? Because pretending faith doesn't pray. Pretending faith doesn't pray. He even tries to sound religious about it, doesn't he? He goes, I couldn't possibly put the Lord to the test. I couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly think of, of coming and imposing on the Lord in that way. That is, it's a high-minded, self-righteous rejection of the protection of the Lord. A high-minded, self-righteous uh, exclamation that I am going to do this my way and I do not need the Lord or trust the Lord or want the Lord. And it's the same thing that we often do when we're pretending at faith. We say, I, I, I don't want to be selfish and tell you the things and needs in my life. I don't want to act as though I am entitled that the Lord would have to listen to somebody as small as me and request as small as the request that I have. I couldn't possibly go and, and burden the Lord with things like that, except that Jesus says that the father likes to hear from his children. And if your dad, who is a wicked and sinful man, can give you good gifts, is not the heavenly father, who is holy and righteous and kind and good and rich, give you even greater gifts than that. That what we have is a high-minded unbelief, a self-righteous rejection of the truth about God. The truth is, is that we don't ask because we don't believe that it matters. We don't believe that he will answer. We don't believe that he will actually come through, that he will actually heal us, that he will actually provide for us, that he will actually deliver us, that he will actually supply us. And so we are left to our own devices. We are left to our own ingenuity. We are left to our own wisdom to do things as we think, see fit. We call it common sense. We call it being rational. We call it being normal. And God calls it wickedness. God calls it wickedness. How do you know if you're pretending? Do you pray? Do you pray? Do you trust God with what burdens you? Do you trust God with what you're facing that you, can't, that you can't overcome? Do you trust God with insurmountable odds? Do you trust God or do you follow down the path of anxiety and constantly bury yourself and try to carry the load on your own shoulders knowing already that you're going to drown? Do you pray?
the other part of his, his response that we see is he actually quotes the Bible here. He quotes the Bible. If, if I was in Isaiah's shoes and he come and, and Ahaz says, look, I'm not gonna ask because I don't wanna test the Lord. I don't know about y'all, but that sounds good to me. And he's actually quoting there Deuteronomy 6.16, which is written to God's people when they had become so addicted, so accustomed to signs from God that they had to have signs to even love God at all. And so Ahaz is coming and he's applying that to his kind. He says, I'm not gonna ask for a sign. I don't wanna test the Lord. But you see, he was manipulating God's word. He was assigning his own intent to what God had written. Because as Calvin says, if God tells you that you need a son, you need a son. If God says that you need to have your faith strengthened, you need to have your faith strengthened. If God makes the offer, then God is offering because you need the assurance and you need the help. And so Ahaz bends the word of God to fit his own situation. He bends the word of God so that it says what he needs it to say. He bends the word of God so that in self-righteousness and in high-mindedness, he might wield the word of God, not as a, as a sword that cuts to the soul, but instead as a sword that fights off conviction and fights off guilt and fights off the prophet of the Lord. And that's what pretending faith does. Pretending faith bends God's word. Pretending faith bends God's word. It is an awful thing to add your own intent, your own, your own message to the word of God. It is an awful thing to put words into the mouth of the Almighty, into the mouth of the one before whom every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. It is an awful thing to put words into the mouth of the one who sits upon his throne and upon his judgment seat as though he doesn't know what he's written as though he doesn't know what's there. It's an awful thing to live in unrepentant sin and to have someone try to bring gentle, kind correction and to respond back, only God can judge me. It is an awful thing to try to end around the fellowship of the local church only to say, well, the spirit is in me and the spirit is everywhere. So it doesn't matter what I do or where I go. It is an awful thing to live callously in a life of sin and to ultimately say, well, grace will increase all the more. I know that God will forgive me as though God hasn't called you to a higher and holier life, as though God's Holy Spirit isn't sanctifying you and transforming you, as though God will bring you into his house and leave you in your sin. To bend God's word. And do you see there's a, there's, a, there's a subtle thing that happens here. L look in verse, uh, verse 11, it says, ask a sign of the Lord, your God. You might circle your here. Now look at the verse 13. Isaiah changes. He says, and he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So verse 11, Isaiah has given him the benefit of the doubt. He is talking to him as though God is his God and that he is in the covenant. But with his rejection, with his rejection of God's word and his rejection of God's sign, he says, it is not your God. He is my God. You are excluded from the covenant, excluded from the kingdom, excluded from the remnant. The judgment of God has come upon Ahaz. 
You see, if you bend the word of God to fit your own lifestyle and to fit your own devices, the word of God will not bend until it breaks. Instead, the word of God will break you on the day of judgment. Brothers and sisters, I understand that is a hard word, but as Isaiah coming to Ahaz, I, your pastor, am coming to you in grace and kindness to say, oh, 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 submit yourself to the word of the Lord and have life. Submit yourself to the word of the Lord and be saved. Submit yourself to the word of the Lord and repent of assigning an intent that you, that you might be transformed into something greater and have joy that is abiding and resting in you. Will you bend God's word or will you obey it? Is your faith pretend or is your faith authentic? And that brings us to the climax of the text. The reason that we went here on the Sunday before Christmas. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call him Emmanuel. That is the Lord doubles down on his promise. The Lord doubles down on his kindness. The Lord doubles down on his own grace. He says, name a sign, name the most miraculous sign that you can think of and I will give it to you. Ahaz says, no, no, I am not going to name a sign. I am not going to test the Lord. I'm gonna stand here in my self-righteous, high-minded unfaithfulness. And the Lord says, that's okay. I'm gonna give a sign greater than you could ever imagine, greater than you could ever conceive of. You won't ask for a sign? I'm giving a sign anyway, because I am bringing all of this to be. I am going to deliver my people. I am gonna save the remnant and it is going to be in spite of you not through you. You see, there's two questions bubbling beneath the surface of Isaiah chapter seven. Two questions. The first question is, is God's promise to David really true? And the second question, is God really with us? First, let's let's see, let's think about how the virgin birth answers that first question of, is, is God's promise to David really true? See, God in 2 Samuel 7, he had told David that his throne was going to endure forever, that his people were going, or his descendants were gonna sit upon his throne. And Ahaz, Ahaz believed that it was his responsibility to sustain that throne. Ahaz believed that it was his responsibility to make sure that that promise came to full fruition. And that's why he tries to get the, in the, um, the, the alliance with Assyria. That's why he goes and he offers them what was offered unto the Lord. He offers to them because he knows God's promise. And so he feels responsible to make sure that God's promise comes to be. But what God wants us to see is that God accomplishes his promises by his processes. God accomplishes his promises in his way, by his method, in his timing. He didn't need Ahaz's help. He didn't need Ahaz's alliance. He didn't need Ahaz's ingenuity. He, he the Lord was seated upon the throne. He the Lord had already willed and decreed that these things come to be. And these promises were unstoppable. And so the baby, the baby that was gonna be born to a virgin, the baby was as much a, a promise of encouragement to the people of God as it was a rebuke of Ahaz. Ahaz, you think I need you? You think I need you to preserve the throne? 
of David? Do you think I need you to keep my promises to my son? You think I need you? No, I don't need you. I'm going to remove you. I'm gonna remove you by Assyria itself, it says in verse 17. And I'm gonna keep my promise by placing a baby in the womb of a virgin. I'm gonna keep my promise by bringing out a king that is greater than you can ever conceive of. A king that will keep my word and uphold my promises and fulfill the law perfectly and will lead my people back to me. The king will be replaced with a baby. One commentator, Kidner, he said this, well, the king calls in an army. God looks to the birth of a child. Oh, brothers and sisters, you can be warned and you can be encouraged at the very same time by the virgin birth that God will accomplish his promises in your life by his processes. You're gonna wait. You're gonna wait. The Advent season, if it teaches us nothing else, it teaches us that faith requires our waiting, doesn't it? That the promises aren't immediately fulfilled. God tells us what will be. And it's our responsibility to place our full confidence that the Lord, what he says will happen, will ultimately happen. And we get in our life and we wait for the marriage we've always wanted and we wait for the family we've always looked forward to and we wait for the opportunities that we believe that God has called for us to be. We wait for the ministries we believe that God is calling us to. We wait for the missions that we believe that God is calling us to. And it's our temptation to try to outrun the timing of God and force those things into happening in our lives. Though we know the promises of God, we now believe that we have the responsibility by our own devices to go out and to accomplish and to fulfill those promises but you see it's the unique position of faith you try to save yourself and you will die die to yourself and you will be saved you try to implement God's promises in your, by your methods and God's promises will fall flat every single time but you wait until the Lord you wait until the Lord you trust the timing of the Lord you trust the kindness of the Lord you trust the processes of the Lord and you will look back over the course of your life and you will see that God was using the waiting room of your life to prepare you for the goodness and the grace and the majesty of his promises coming to bear in you no one regrets waiting for the Lord. No one regrets waiting for the Lord, but everyone regrets trying to outrun the Lord. This morning, don't interfere, don't intervene, wait on the Lord. And that brings us to the chief question of the text. Is God with us or not? Is God with us or not? Is God going to defend us from our enemies or not? Is God gonna defend us before Israel and Syria or not? Is God going to defend us before Assyria or not? Is God going to save us from wicked kings or not? And Isaiah is saying, not in the way that you expect, not in the way that you are looking for, not in the way that is typical or normal. No, Isaiah is telling us to look forward to this baby, this baby that in just two chapters will be described as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. And do you know what the name of this baby is? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And do you know what Emmanuel means? Emmanuel literally means God with us. God with us. Is God with us? Yes, God is with us. And he's not just floating around in the ethereal sense. He's not just out in the atmosphere somewhere, hopefully, uh, hoping to integrate into our society. No, 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 no. God was the baby that was born to the virgin. He was the word that became flesh. Jesus is 
proof that God is with us because he is God with us. He was conceived of the spirit, born without sin, yet born as a man to a woman. He is God with us as one of us living among us. He is God and man, man but God. He is able to overcome all hurt and over and experience all hurt. He is God, he is able to overcome all temptation and to conquer that temptation. He is Jacob but without deception. He is Moses but without murder. He is David but without Bathsheba. He is Solomon, but without his wives. Jesus is the promise kept and Jesus is the promise keeper. He is God himself in the flesh, dwelling among us to deliver us from our enemies, to save us from ourselves. He is the seed that is planted in Isaiah that comes to full bloom in Matthew chapter one so that he will ultimately say at the end of his life on earth, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this morning, church, this morning, church, wherever there is discouragement, wherever there is the question of God's faithfulness, wherever there is uncertainty in the waiting, I beckon you, look to the baby born to the Virgin Mary and see that the promise has been kept and the promises will be kept. God is with you and he is with you always until the very end of the age. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.